0: for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you.
1: Morning, everybody. Um, I just wanted to take a second and just deal with something real quickly because um, I told Brian and Angela Parker, our communications director, and I were just talking about this, and I know how tough Mother's Day can be and I think one of my things has been in the past few years is that I haven't wanted Mother's Day to be a distraction or to be a trigger or to keep some of you away. Um, Because I've heard the stories over the years of why people aren't coming to church on Mother's Day and how difficult it is. And um, one of the things that I wanna let you know is that Bryant's mom passed away two and a half years ago. And so today is kind of tricky for us too. Um, It's one of those things of like, okay, what do we do today? Like, where do we go? And what do we, you know? And my mom lives out of state. And so it's a little bit of an interesting day for us. Um, But I also know there's a lot of you out there that um, you're walking through loss today, either of your mom or of a child. My mom is walking through the loss of of my brother who committed suicide a couple of years ago, and it's a tricky day for her. Some of you are struggling through infertility, miscarriage, um, and it's so difficult for you to come and constantly be reminded of a dream that you haven't been able to have yet, Um, Some of you are single moms and um, nobody planned out a Mother's Day gift for you today. Everybody forgot. Some of you are single dads and you're having to wrestle through being mommy and daddy for your kids. Some of you are foster parents, and um, we had a really sweet friend reach out to us and thank us for the way the church has been handling this because she said oftentimes foster parents aren't seen as real parents. Um, Some of you are grandparents, and you've stepped into the role as mom and dad, Um, and then some of you are military, and your spouse is overseas, and you're walking through today alone, and so I wanted to, before we do anything else, just stop and let you know that we see you and a lot of us understand what you're walking through. You're not going through it alone. And this morning is not going to be about moms or women or anything like that because I wanted you to be able to come and have a safe place where you feel like you can just breathe and you don't have to be reminded of the pain and what you feel like you may be missing out on or what you haven't faced yet. And so I just want you to know we love you. We're so thankful for you. We're so thankful for the women in this house who just by their very nature are loving and nurturing other people. And so we do have a gift for you afterwards and this is for all women. Um, So make sure you grab that. But we're just so grateful you're here and I'm so honored that you would come out today and that you would trust us with today. So thank you so much for being here this morning. I did want to tell you, you're all really quiet, and I know I came out with a banger, but um, (laughs) we're going to talk about my story today, and it's going to be heavy, okay? But I'm also part of my personality, I think part of how I've learned how to deal with the trauma that's happened in my life is to laugh about it. It's dark humor. So I hope some of you appreciate dark humor this morning because I'm going to make a lot of really weird jokes, um, and I need you to know you have permission to laugh, okay? Um, And you have permission to think it's funny. Um, And then we're going to talk a lot about some. Deep stuff. And so if you're moved, I know some of you already showed me your tissue boxes this morning. Um, My goal is not to make you cry, but if that happens, that's awesome. Um, Because Brian and I don't keep track of who you guys like more or better, but um, any emails you want to send your, our way, it's end goal. I'm just joking. <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm so glad you guys are here. So I preached a version of this message about four years ago, and I had to spend about five minutes reassuring people that it was OK for a woman to be on stage and actually preach. Okay, our church was very different four years ago. Um, Full disclosure, I like it now. (laughs) I like who we have now because I don't have to stand up here and convince you it's okay for a woman to be on stage, do I? Y'all already know and y'all are okay with it, and I love that. And I don't plan on teaching this morning, I plan on preaching. Now, some of you are still probably a little bit nervous about that. Who grew up Southern Baptist? I'm just joking, y'all don't need it. Oh, someone's raising their hand, I love it. Me too, sir. You and I are together, he was ready. Um, Some of you did grow up Southern Baptist and no hate or shame on the Southern Baptists. we love them. Um, But you're still a little bit nervous today and that's okay, listen, I grew up in an environment where there were so many rules I couldn't even keep track of them, okay? Um, We, my dad worked An organization where we couldn't drink alcohol, we couldn't play with playing cards because that would lead to gambling, we couldn't go to theaters because that would lead to making out. And I don't, honestly, their reasoning for theaters is beyond me, but whatever. Um, So we couldn't go to theaters, um, we couldn't go to dances, so um, that means my dad never danced with me at my wedding. Um, I went to my first dance party in sixth grade, didn't realize it was a dance party until I got in the car. My mom asked if I danced, and I was like, well, I mean, I think I did this, you know. And that caused such an issue, we were on the phone with my dad's boss, wondering if they were going to ask my dad to resign. This is me as a 12-year-old at a little, da- like, 60s retro birthday party. Um, I didn't see my first movie until I was 22, and unfortunately, I wasted it on I Am Legend. Okay, with Will I I mean, it's... It's a good movie, but seriously, that was like my intro into the movie theaters, and I didn't do any making out, believe it or not. Um, so I guess part of it was okay. Never went to any of my proms. Um, my first sip of wine was at—I um, was 24 years old, and it was with Bryant's mom. And looking back now, I'm like, why did you guys start me with red wine? Why wasn't it like something sparkly? Because I like almost threw up in my mouth, and they're like this is so good, and I was like, this is disgusting. If someone would have just had let me have a sip of this at like 16, I would have sworn off alcohol for my whole life. Um, I was wearing culottes when Bryant first met me. Do we know what culottes are anymore? They go down to your knees. And after we had been dating for several months, he's like, do you think you maybe want to go shopping with my sister? I was like, excuse me, but yes, you know. So I bought my first mini skirt with his sister. um, And I'll never forget wearing it in front of my parents. And they're like, well, your style has sure changed. I was like, yes, it has. Please don't disown me, you know. Um, And I want to say this about my parents real quickly because they bless their hearts they listen to every message I preach and I'm so thankful for them Um, they call it speaking still and that's fine my dad supports me by buying me new outfits whenever I speak and I love it but I, I want to speak to them, and I actually want to speak to some of the parents in the crowd this morning, because I, one of the things that I told Brian was like, yes, this is my story, and God has done a lot of healing in my heart. Some of these things are still very difficult for me to talk about, and I never want to get up here and preach out of anger, and I never want to get up here and preach out of bitterness. And one of the things I know about my parents is that they did the best that they could do in the situation and environments they were in. They really felt like they were following Jesus. They really felt like they were serving Jesus, but it was an incredibly toxic environment. And they did not realize the environment they were in until they left it. And I know some of you parents in here carry a lot of guilt and a lot of pain some of you have been able to own it and some of you haven't because of how you raised your children because when we look at how parenting has changed it's hard to keep up but we look back and we look at how churches were how organizations were how parenting was and you honestly did the best you could in the environments that you were in but it wasn't you know the most healthy right and some of you have had to face that, and that's difficult. And I want you to know as a child of someone who's had to work through this with their parents, I get that. I understand that they w- if they could go back and redo a lot of what they did, they would redo it in a heartbeat. But they really honestly felt like they were making the right decisions, and it's only in hindsight that they realized that they weren't. So I want to give some hope to you parents to let you know that having honest, open conversations with your kids about, hey, I know where I failed, I know where we went off the rails. I know the kind of trauma this has brought into your life. That goes so far with us. Because we just wanna hear that you understand that you know it. And honestly, that springboards us onto the path of freedom and hope. But I say all that to say, they thought they were doing the right things. And see, some of you are completely messed up and screwed up and we all are, so I'm not calling you out. But some of you are completely messed up and screwed up because you decided not to follow any of the rules, right? You thought you decided early like this is whack, I'm out of here, I'm not gonna follow any of the rules. See, I'm screwed up and messed up because I followed all of the rules, right? And rules in and of themselves are not wrong. The problem is, is this word called legalism and I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the word legalism. Um, I would maybe interchange that with the word moralism. In other words, if I do X, Y, and Z, people will approve of my behavior, they'll accept me, and they'll love me. But if I don't do X, Y, and Z, people will disapprove of my behavior, they won't accept me, and I won't feel loved. Um, And it takes it a step further when we bring it into religious organizations and churches, when we start to say, hey, if you do X, Y, and Z, God will love you, God will accept you. But if you don't do X, Y, and Z, God won't love you and God won't accept you. And it's so dangerous. Because what happens then is people take, uh, they start to manipulate. They have all this control over your life. And so you start to question, am I good enough, right? Have I done enough of the right things? Um, Am I loved? Am I secure? Am I safe? Am I going to be okay? And you really start to live in this, in, in, in this state of mind where you don't even know who you are anymore because you're trying so hard to be what everyone else wants you to be because you're afraid if you get it wrong, you're going to be rejected and abandoned. And this was the environment that I grew up in. And again, my parents didn't mean for it to happen. It just is what it is. And so I remember working so hard at becoming a perfectionist, and I was. I barely went out with any of my friends. My parents had to force me out of the house to hang out with my friends. I I remember my friends would just show up at my house, come upstairs, drag me out of my room, and take me out. I was so afraid that if I hung out with them, I would spend less time studying, and I wouldn't get an A. I graduated valedictorian. That's not hard to believe because there are 22 people in my class, but we'll just say valedictorian, okay? (laughs) Okay. The more impressive thing was my 3.98 in college, okay? That's after five years of college with a double major. So you can applaud that. That was difficult. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. But, of course, in college, I wasn't doing anything other than studying, right? There was no sex. There was no alcohol. There was no partying for me. I'm telling you, I was a perfectionist. And I had two or three babies named after me. I kid you not. That's how good I was. So, like, before I was even 18, parents were naming their children after me. Um, and I remember thinking, okay, I'm safe because I'm doing all of the right things. Whereas my brother was a wild child. Um, and um, But believe it or not, everyone loved him more because he was more fun. But I was the perfectionist. And then one of the things that legalists love is they love a good project, right? And so my parents met this young woman um, who needed a lot of help. They brought her into our house, and at this point, I was 18 or 19, so I think, in, in their defense, they really thought that I was okay, right? I'm 18, I'm 19, I'm fine, but I wasn't, right? I was just getting into college, going out on my own, so they brought this girl into our house, didn't really have any discussions with my brother, sister, and I, and, um, she kind of took over their whole world. She had a lot of issues, and, I started to feel ignored, kind of pushed out, and and because she had so many issues, she had all these fascinating stories, and anywhere we went, she had a story about something she had done, or been, or traveled to, or whatever, and I started realizing, like, everyone just started gravitating towards her, and I thought, like, I'm over here doing everything I know to do, why can't I get anyone to love me, and she's over here living any way she wants to, and she's got all the attention, and so I just started getting angry, but I didn't know I was getting angry, do you know what I'm saying? You know when stuff just starts kind of bubbling under the surface, you don't know really what's happening, and so um, in college, I met this guy named Andrew, and we fell in love, Um, and we were planning on getting married um, until my parents and some other people stepped in and said absolutely not. He was an incredible guy. Um, They said absolutely not Um, and basically told me to cut off the relationship and I did. I cut off the relationship and literally this is how our relationship ended. I walked up to him and I gave him all his stuff and I just said I need to break up with you. We hugged. He said I still love you and guys that was the end. He tried to contact me, He tried to talk to me People in my life said, absolutely not. You're not going to have any communication with him. In fact, made me sit down and go through my Facebook. We didn't have Instagram at the time. Went through Facebook. I had to delete every conversation, every picture. Um, And then um, they were like, hey, you should move to Florida and start teaching. And so I moved down to Lakeland. Funny thing was he's just living over in Largo, but I was told no communication, no nothing. I'm 23 at the time. And I'm listening to all of this and going, okay, I won't do it. I won't do it. I won't do it. And I'm just stuffing, 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 right? And so I meet Bryant. We meet on a blind date of all things. Um, And I'm like, okay, nobody's going to have any issues with Bryant because he's a pastor. You know, he's older than me. He's got his own life. He's doing great. But y'all know Bryant, right? (laughs) Okay, homeboy is like reading these crazy books. He's challenging everything, okay? He's a legalist's worst nightmare. And so (laughs) I am not kidding when I say my parents had a heart attack. Like what is going on, right? And not only then, but other people. I mean, I remember my brother calling me and being like, what are you doing? You need to, and I'm like, with Bryant? Like a pastor, someone who loves Jesus has been to seminary, like he's not good enough? And for the first time in my life, I said, "Pardon my French." I'm not going to say anything bad. I'm just going to say, "Screw it!" But I felt like I needed to. I said, "Screw it!" Like I love him. He's following Jesus. He's going after Jesus. Like I, I cannot keep letting people control my life and tell me what to do. And so we um, met in May. We were engaged in December. We were married the following May. I'm sorry. We met in March. March, December, May. Married the following May. And then he was named lead pastor that July. And everything was going great until about that July when we were in the office. I would come to work with him um, because I wasn't teaching during the summer. And I just started crying every day, all day long. And, And I could not figure out why. I was just sad. Um, and so he'd come back into my little office, and I'd just be sitting there sobbing, and he'd be like, what's going on? I was like, I have no idea. I'm just sad. I don't know. I should be happy, right? We just bought a house. We just got married. You just got named lead pastor. Like, I should be happy, and I'm not happy, and so that should have been our first cue, but we weren't really paying attention. We had no context for mental illness, and so we let a few more weeks go by, and then my outbursts got a little bit more crazy. Um, I started screaming and yelling, and I'd come up with these crazy scenarios, completely irrational. I'd start accusing him of all sorts of things, and it was just in our, in, in, behind closed walls. And so that should have been our second cue. Then after that, it started, I started acting out when we had family events. Remember, one Labor Day, we were all at mom and dad's, and I lost it. And I'm just freaking out um, to the point where I just started walking home, and Brian's sister had to pick me up in the car and take me home. And um, she was like, The first year of marriage is really hard. It's, it's going to be okay. But she had no idea just how bad it was. And then it started getting to the point where I started beating up myself, I started punching myself. Then I started punching Bryant, got physically um, aggressive with him. Then I started throwing things. Um, I would just throw random objects through the house. Um, then he would go to get a break. Just, he needed to take a drive. And I find this funny, but I'd hop in my car and I'd just follow him through town. You know, like the crazy psycho I was at the time. It's funny. Um, and he, <laughs> you're all right. It's nervous laughter, but you're okay. And... um, when it came to the fall and I started teaching again, I had my first two periods free, and so I would just show up at school, I'd turn all the lights off in my classroom, and I would just sit in a, in a ball in my classroom for those two hours until students came, and then somehow I was able to pull it together, teach, then I'd get home and we'd start the whole cycle over again. And um, I think at that point, we thought, <laughs> and I don't know how many of you have done this, but again, we had no context for mental illness, so we were like, okay. I think my thyroid's off. I think my thyroid's off, and that's the problem, right? My mom has thyroid issues. My grandma has thyroid issues. I'm going to go to the doctor. We're going to get checked out, and we're going to find out it's just thyroid issues, and all this is going to get taken care of. So I went to the doctor. And, um, I don't, I honestly cannot remember why they decided to give me, um, a questionnaire. I do know like anxiety and depression can be related to thyroid issues. So maybe they were just trying to dot their I's and cross their T's. I don't know. But I remember sitting there with this questionnaire and it was a questionnaire on depression and anxiety. And as I'm answering it, I'm like, dang, like, it's like, are you sad all the time? Yes. Have you thought about hurting yourself? Yes. Have you thought, you know, all these different things. And, I get into the doctor's office, and she walks in, and she um, started asking me questions. And I was like, I don't know how to answer these. I need to get my husband on the phone. So I get Brian on the phone, and I'm like, she's asking me if I've ever thought of killing myself. And he stopped for a second, and he's like, baby, the answer is yes, you have. And so I just told the doctor, I was like, yeah, I have thought about killing myself. And she looked at me, and she's like, you don't have a thyroid issue. You have a clinical depression issue. And I sat there and I was like, no you know like the way I'm raised depression anxiety that's a result of sin right that's a result of unconfessed sin or you just deciding not to follow Jesus or believe or it's a cry for help right it's a it's a just put me on medication so I can feel happy right that's what that is I I don't have depression anxiety you know as far as I know I'm good with God I've done all the penance and everything I need I'm good with God and so I left there and I just was sobbing in the car because I told Brian I was like we're never going to get any answers because it's not depression you know And so then I was like, okay, well, let's give the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it is. Let me get these CDs, and we're going to just pray this away, right? Because this is what Christians do. If you're not a a Christian, if you're not a believer, we're crazy like this. We don't just deal with the issues. We're like, oh, everything else is wrong, right? So I'm like, we'll pray it away. We'll pray it away. And it only got worse. It got to the point where I would be sitting at home in my room with steak knives, thinking like this could all be over in just a second if I could just find the courage to to end it all. And I remember at that point we were so desperate that Bryant actually wrote a letter of resignation um, to the elders of Center Point Church. And I want us to just take a deep breath for just a second, okay? <laughs> because I, I want to I, I ask you this question Why is this so difficult for us to hear, right? Why is it so weird that a pastor would be on stage? And would tell you all this. Why is this unheard of? And I'm not patting myself on the back. It makes me very sad. Because here's the thing. Historically, the church as a whole, not just Centerpoint Church, but the church as a whole, has had no idea how to deal with emotional breakdowns and mental illness. We've had no idea how to deal with this stuff. And I remember when Brian and I were walking through it, we felt so alone because nobody was talking about mental illness. Nobody was talking about emotional breakdowns. Nobody was talking about suicidal pastor's wives. Nobody was talking about this stuff. And so we honestly didn't know what to do. Do we resign? Are we unfit for ministry? Do we talk about this? Like if we talk about this, what are people gonna do? Are they gonna think I'm loony? Are they gonna think I'm crazy? Will they be able to trust me? And then my brother in 2019 ended up committing suicide. He was a pastor. He was a children's pastor. Had hidden an opioid uh, uh, addiction for years and never felt like he could be honest with any of the churches he worked for. He worked for about six or seven in Texas because every time he got caught, he moved to a different church. And and he, he never felt like he could be honest. He never felt like he could open up. And so January 4th, 2019, he took his life. And I thought, this ends now right? This ends with us. No more am I going to be silenced by the stigma of mental illness and watch people suffer in silence. And I'm not going to be around for anyone else's suicide. That was horrific. I don't want to see anyone else have to walk through that. And so we're going to start speaking out about it because it's time the church takes the gag off their mouth and starts talking about the real issues of mental illness and suicide because it's time we tell the enemy enough. But we should be on the forefront of this, right? Because we know what Genesis 3 says, right? Genesis 3 says that sin broke stuff. Sin broke stuff. See, God created the world perfect. He put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And then Eve, for whatever reason, felt like she was missing out on something. And so when she took a bite of that fruit all of creation broke. Creation wasn't expecting someone to just go out and do their own thing. Creation wasn't expecting someone to look for their needs to be met outside of Jesus Christ. Creation expected, oh, we're held together, we're put together by God himself, that's who sustains us, that's who meets our needs, that's who takes care of us. And He said, I don't think so, I think I'm missing out on something. And so when she took a bite of that fruit, Everything broke, and we broke physically, we broke spiritually, we broke mentally, and we broke emotionally. And for some of you, you're like, of course, we broke physically, right? Cancer, Alzheimer's, COVID-19, bronchitis, you know, broken arms, broken legs, osteoporosis. These are all ways that we've broken physically. We can easily accept that, can't we? We can accept most of us that we've broken spiritually. We know stuff isn't right. You just look at the past two years, okay? I'm not going to belabor it, but you know stuff isn't right. We're not okay spiritually. But for some reason, we have a really difficult time acknowledging the fact that we're broken mentally and emotionally, and that's what I can't understand. I don't know why we can accept that we're broken in all these other areas, but then when the, we start talking about brokenness mentally and emotionally, we get all weird about it. And it's the stigma we've put around it, and the only way for that stigma to go away is for more of us to start speaking out, and so that's what I wanted to do today. And so we start looking for love, acceptance, worth, and security out of our brokenness, And we start looking for it anywhere and everywhere except in Jesus Christ. And as a result, that produces unhealed hurts, unresolved issues, and unmet needs in our lives. And here's the thing. You all, we all have unmet needs, unresolved issues, and unhealed hurts in our lives. We all have them. The problem is, is some of us have lived so long with our brokenness, we don't even recognize it anymore. Um, Last night, one of my absolute favorite movies about mental illness is Silver Linings Playbook. I don't know how many of you have seen it. If you haven't, you need to go home and see it tonight. Um, I feel like it represents mental illness so well. Um, And it's not dark and heavy where, like, you're sobbing the whole time. It's Bradley Cooper, um, J-Law, Jennifer Lawrence, um, Robert De Niro. They're funny. They bring some humor through it. But there's a scene where Bradley Cooper is sitting with his therapist and um, he's having a really hard time acknowledging that something is broken in him. Um, and he, he knows what he's done. He knows, you know, why, what's led him to this place. But he's having a terrible time acknowledging it. And so he sits there and he's just kind of going through the fact that he's had to spend some time in a mental institution. And now he's undiagnosed bipolar And um, the therapist just kind of starts asking him questions, and and he makes this line, and and I just think this is crazy. He said, I've been dealing with this my whole life and without any supervision. And he's like, and that's scary. And then he said, I've just been white-knuckling this my entire life until now. And I remember watching that. We watched that in 2012. I didn't realize it, but Bryant looked it up last night. We were like, we saw this in 2012. That was two years after we'd gotten married. And that was the the year my first daughter was born. And we had waited for a little bit um, because we wanted to make sure that I was headed on the right track with my emotional, mental healing to be able to be a mom. And I'll never forget watching that movie for the first time and just bursting in tears. Because, you see, I knew for years something was amiss. But I couldn't figure out what it was, and so I had just been white-knuckling my life, hoping to God I could hold it all together and not unleash, and it just so happened that when we got married, and stress started coming, and there were all these new adventures that I just couldn't hold on anymore, and so things just kind of started slipping out of my hands, and so I want to ask you, what have you been white-knuckling? What is your unhealed hurt, unresolved issue, or unmet need? And for some of you, you're going to have to go way back. I wrote down a couple of things that could be yours. Your dad left. Your mom left. Um, There was a death in the family. You were raped. You were abused. It was a breakup. It was a failed marriage. It was a major financial setback. It was a failure. You got fired. You couldn't measure up. You couldn't provide. You struggled in school, you got sick, you were betrayed, you were rejected, you were ignored, you were silenced, maybe you were spoiled. But whatever it is, that unmet need, that unresolved issue, and that unhealed hurt, you have been reacting to it ever since it happened. And suddenly you don't even realize you're you're reacting to it. It's called triggers. And so I wrote some things down. This is why you get angry with your spouse over stupid things. This is why you push your kids too hard or you don't push them at all. This is why you work so much, why you eat too much, why you eat too little, why you have to have everything just so, why you're always afraid, why you don't have any friends, why none, none of your marriages have worked, why you drink, why you take that pill, why you, why you, why you. See, those things are triggers in our lives. And if we don't take the time to figure out what our unhealed hurts and unresolved issues and unmet needs are in our lives, things are going to trigger us. And then our bodies go into fight or flight mode, right? Adrenaline rush. It's crazy when you start to study mental illness and mental health that your mind is so connected to everything physiologically. And so you have this adrenaline rush when you hit those triggers. Some of you go into fight mode, which means now you're completely anxiety ridden and you're having a panic attack. Some of you go into flight mode, right? And you're in a fetal position in a dark room and you're battling intense depression. You have to figure out what your unmet needs, unhealed hurts, and unresolved issues are because then you can start to deal with those triggers, and that's going to be the catalyst for your healing. But until you start to ask yourself these tough questions, and listen, it's hard work, and it sucks. You're going to have to face your trauma head on. But I just want to ask some of you, aren't you tired? Aren't you exhausted trying to hold it all together all the time? Aren't you just emotionally burnt out from white-knuckling your life? And what about a couple of months of just dealing with your trauma head-on so that you can start to have freedom? So Bryant wrote his letter of resignation. He gave it to the elders, and they threw it away. And I just want to say this to our elders, because our elders know, they know my issues, they know I'm still in counseling, they know I'm on Lexapro, I still take medication, they know all of these things. Our elders have created such a safe place for our pastoral staff, anyone who's on staff. Do you know why there are so many affairs in in church leadership? Do you know why there's so many suicides among pastors? Suicide is almost one of the leading causes of death with pastors. Do you know why there's so many broken marriages and crazy things that are going on in church world today? It's because elders don't create a safe place for pastors to be real and to say they're struggling. And so pastors feel, fear losing their jobs, their insurance, their financial stability, and so they keep things hidden. They think keep things quiet because the elder teams are not willing to get pastors to help and create a safe place. And I just want you to know that's not true with our elders here at Center Point Church. And I honestly owe my life to them because they said no. And instead, they started helping us find the help that we need. And so we ended up going to Georgia for a couple of days and met with a couple who deal specifically with people in ministry who are going through difficult times. And um, the unhealed hurts and unresolved issues and unmet needs that I'm talking to you about, I learned all of that from them. And they really started helping us unearth those things, specifically in my life. Because I'll never forget, we had to take all these questionnaires and stuff before we got there. And um, I got there, and and Phil looked at me, and he was like, Nicole, do you know how angry you are? And I was like, no, I mean. on a scale of one to ten I'm like a four I guess I don't know and he just looked at me and he was like I have never in my life had someone score this high and I'm like okay so a seven and he was like he was like you're a 10 out of 10 sweetheart (laughs) with anger right so we started unearthing a lot of this stuff going on in, in both of our lives and I thought I was healed I was like okay I got it now, right? I've dealt with all the spiritual stuff. I've taken care of all the sin, all the unforgiveness, the bitterness, the anger. I'm healed. I I understand how Jesus sees me now. I understand that I'm forever safe. I get all that, so I'm healed. And so we get home, and and I remember, I don't, Brian's up here, but you remember, like, we, like, psst, 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 our house, like, we were, like, Casting out the demons, we're like, we're walking into a clean home, you know, a happy house, you know. I'm not kidding you, we're like praying. And if we had like blood of lamb and goats, I'm sure we would have anointed the doorpost. Like, we were like, we are good to go, you know. And I think it was like a week later that I had another major anxiety attack. Um, and I was, like, steak knives again and hurting myself again and hurting Bryant again and screaming and yelling. And, I mean, we were right back to where we were. And the discouragement that we felt in that moment because we were like, we've taken care of everything spiritually. Like, what is going on? And... um I got into counseling with Kevin, who's my therapist, and I've been with him now for 12 years. So in August, it'll be Kevin's and my 12-year anniversary. So I have an anniversary with my husband and my therapist, you know. Um, That's the only, like, you know, that's okay, everyone, but nobody else, all right? Don't have anniversaries with anyone else. Um, And he, I sat in his office, and he said, I don't like labels. And this was after a couple of months of meeting with him. He said, I don't like labels, but I want you to read this. And I want you to tell me if you relate to this. And so just for sake of just humor me, I'm going to put up what he, what he had me read. It's borderline personality disorder. It's a mental health disorder that impacts the way you think and feel about yourself and others. It causes problems functioning in everyday life. It includes self-image issues, difficult managing emotions and behavior, and a pattern of unstable relationships. With borderline personality disorder, you have an intense fear of abandonment or instability And you may have difficulty tolerating being alone. Inappropriate anger, impulsiveness, and frequent mood swings may push others away, even though you want to have loving and lasting relationships. And I read that, and I burst into tears. And he said, why are you crying? And I said, because for the first time in my life, I feel like I finally understand what's going on. I feel like I finally understand that something is happening to me and not because of me, right? And here's what I want some of you to know this morning, because some of you have never been told this. Mental illness is not something is wrong with you. Something is happening to you. And the relief of that is that you can take control of whatever is happening to you. You don't have to live a victim anymore. You don't have to live under the control of these unmet needs, unhealed hurts, and unresolved issues. You can take control of your life back, but half of the battle is understanding what you're up against. And once I finally understood that I was up against anxiety, depression, and borderline personality disorder, I started to have some hope. Because I thought, I can actually fight against this. I'm not fighting against myself anymore. I'm not fighting against other people anymore. I'm fighting against this disorder, and we can get to the other side of it. And so I remember thinking, okay, we're finally acknowledging what this is. So now let's just ask Jesus. I'm going to work hard, but let's just ask Jesus to completely take it away, right? Because those are all the good Christian stories you always hear. Like, I had anxiety and I had depression, and I prayed it away. I'm... It's gone, right? In fact, I had books in our library at home that dealt with that stuff. And I went in a couple of months ago and I was like, I can't have these in here. I don't believe in these, right? You can't pray this stuff away. God chooses whether or not to allow it to remain in your life. And we're going to talk about that in a second because that's sometimes hard to reconcile. But this stuff, this side of heaven, listen to me, this side of heaven, we weren't promised to be healed of everything. We weren't promised everything was gonna get taken away. We weren't promised that. So for us to tell people, name it and claim it, believe it. I was at a huge Christian worship concert and they started talking about anxiety in the middle of it and just told people, pray this prayer and God's gonna free so many from your anxiety. And I started shaking, I got so angry. That's a lie from the pit of hell. This side of heaven, we weren't promised that. Things are broken. Do you know what? That's why Jesus Christ died on the cross for us, so that we can look forward to heaven someday when we will be perfect and we won't have to deal with any of that. But we weren't promised that here. And so we went to, my brother was getting married and we went to Texas and we went to his wedding and we um, decided to hit up a church. Um, Matt Chandler, I don't know if any of you have heard of him. he is, he's an old school kind of guy. I, I know he's young, but he preaches old school, but we loved him at the time. And so we went to hear him and I will never forget. I mean, this was, if this wasn't a God moment, I don't know what was, but I'll never forget. He decided to preach out of second Corinthians 12, seven through nine. It's going to be on the screen behind me. And I had heard this passage so many times about Paul's thorn in the flesh, right? So the Apostle Paul, Brian's been talking about him a little bit, but he was Saul. He murdered Christians. Then God met him on the road to Damascus. Um, He got blinded by a light, which was Jesus. He, it affected his eyesight. Then he went, met with someone who was scared to death to meet with him because he's like, God really, like this guy killed people, like, okay, and healed him. And then Paul could see again. But What a lot of people taught this passage to mean was that Paul struggled with his eyesight, and that was the thorn in his flesh that he asked God to remove three different times. Other people said Paul might have had a speech impediment, and that's what he asked God to remove. But Matt said he thought it was an emotional or a mental disorder that Paul asked God to remove. I'm going to read these verses to you, and then I'm going to tell you why. Here's the verses. It says, because of the extravagance of those revelations, in other words, meeting Jesus face to face, because can you imagine if you actually met him face to face? I mean, that's pretty cool. Um, And so I wouldn't get a big head. I was given the gift of a handicap to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. Satan's angel did his best to get me down. What he, in fact, did was push me to my knees. No danger, then, of walking around high and mighty. First, I didn't think it was a gift, and I begged God to remove it. Three times I did that, and then he told me, My grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now I take limitations in stride and with good cheer. These limitations that cut me down to size. I don't know how many of you can relate to these words, but maybe it was abuse for you. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe it was some sort of opposition or hurt relationship. It was some kind of bad financial break or, or job break. But he says, I just let Christ take over, and the weaker I get, the stronger I become. I'll tell you what, I honestly do believe that for Paul, it was a mental, emotional thing. I mean, a messenger of Satan to come and just keep reminding him. You remember that church you just visited? That mom? She's a single mom now because you killed her husband. Oh, that other place you just went, you met with those kids? Yeah, they raised themselves because you killed both of their parents. Oh yeah, that church you just visited, Paul, the the letters you just wrote to all those churches, they don't have a pastor because you took their pastor and you put him in prison, he died in prison. Everywhere Paul went, he was reminded of his past. And he was reminded of all the unhealed hurts and unresolved issues and unmet needs he created in other people's lives. That's why if you look at Philippians 3, 13 through 14, he says this, one thing I do, what's that word? One thing I do, what does he say? Forgetting. Forgetting. That's present tense, isn't it? Then what he said, he says, forgetting what is behind. Forgetting his past. That's one thing. That's all he had the most. The only thing Paul could do was to choose to actively forget what was behind. And then what does it say he had to do? He had to strain towards what is ahead. I press on, present tense, towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And I think it was in that moment as I was hearing Matt preach, I just started sobbing. And I just thought to myself, I, I, I heard Jesus speak to me. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, if you have any kind of mental illness, you, you hear Jesus in a really unique and special way, don't you? The, we forget the passages in Scripture that says God is close to the brokenhearted. Some of you are missing out because you're so afraid of people with mental illness. We have some of the most um, authentic, real, special relationships with Jesus that anyone's ever going to have because he reaches us in our brokenness. And I remember Jesus in that moment saying to me, I'm not gonna take this away. I'm not gonna do it, I could, I'm not gonna do it. Because people need to know that you can have all this up against you, but when you lean into me and you allow me to take over, I can get you to a place where you're healthy and when your scars become my story, And when I start to use your story for my glory. And so I surrendered in that moment. And I I want to look at 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. This is the I I cried the same cry as Paul said. I said, I quit focusing on the handicap, and I'm gonna begin to appreciate the gift. The gift that is my anxiety, the gift that is my depression, the gift that is my borderline personality disorder. I'm gonna start focusing on the gift. Because it's going to be a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. I'm going to take limitations in stride and with good cheer. These limitations that cut me down to size. The abuse, the verbal abuse I experienced, the accidents, the oppositions, the bad breaks. And I'm going to let Christ take over so that the weaker I get, the stronger he becomes. And I'll never forget when I was at my darkest moment, I was face down in our room. I had all the lights off and I was face down. And I... I was begging God to kill me. I was begging him to take my life. Because I couldn't do it anymore. I didn't didn't know who I was. (laughs) And I hated how I felt. And I I told Jesus in that moment, I said, either you're going to do it or I'm going to do it. And I will never forget in that moment, Jesus said to me, I love you. He said, I love you, even here, even now. And I wonder how many of you need to know that. I don't know what darkness you're in the middle of, but I'm here to tell you that if I can stand on this stage and tell you this story, God loves you, even here, even now. And because he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins, when he looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus Christ. He gave up Jesus Christ to get you, which means you are worth Jesus Christ to God. So those people that told you didn't have any worth, those experiences that you walked through where you didn't think you had worth, those times when you felt like you had to prove your worth, God did that for you. He said, I'm going to show you how much you're worth. I'm going to... Have Jesus Christ die in your place. I'm going to kill Jesus to get you. And that's what he did. And so now, now when God looks at you, he doesn't see you. When God looks at me, he doesn't see the borderline. He doesn't see the anxiety. He doesn't see the the depression. He doesn't see the suicide contemplation. He doesn't see the times that I hurt myself physically, the times I hurt my husband, the times I hurt my family and his family. He doesn't see those times. You know what he sees? (laughs) He sees Jesus Christ. That's who he sees. And he sees Jesus Christ's perfection over my entire life. That's what God sees when he looks at me. And so as we wrap up, I just want to ask you, what is your unhealed hurt, your unresolved issue, and your unmet need? I told you a few different times that my brother committed suicide back in 2019 and the only difference and I struggled with a while with survivor's guilt because we battled with a lot of the same stuff and why did he make it and why didn't I and I didn't want to die anymore but I just was so broken because I remember after preaching this message for the first time it was October of 2018 I sent it to him and I said would you please just listen to this and he texted back he's like thanks call, cool, I'll see and Then it was a few months later that he died. And do you know what the only difference between he and I is or was, I guess, now? I got into counseling and I got into community and he didn't. And some of you have been fighting being real and open and honest about where you are. I don't know if it's the stigma. I don't know if it's the fear. I don't know what it is. But you've been so afraid to get into counseling and get into community. And I'm here to tell you that is the only thing that's going to put you back together. Jesus uses counseling. Jesus uses community to bring stuff into the light, to have people surround you. Do you know the only reason why I understood how much Jesus Christ loved me was because my husband loved me at my worst and didn't leave me? It's the one person who didn't leave me. And it wasn't until I experienced his love that I actually understood what Jesus Christ's love was for me. That's the power of community. You have to go back in order to move forward. Some of you are so afraid to get into counseling because you're afraid you're going to have to go back. It's, phys- it's just like physically if you break your arm or you break your leg. You sometimes have to go into the doctor and they have to re- re-break it, right? They have to re-break it to put it in place and then you can start to heal. Listen, counseling is hard, it sucks. You have to relive a lot of stuff some of you haven't thought about in years, but it is the only way to move forward. Proverbs 18 one says this, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. You have to go back in order to go forward. You have to do the hard work of getting into counseling, getting into community, and starting to deal with those unmet needs, unresolved issues, and unhealed hurts. It's your only way forward. And if I can do it, you can do it. I promise you. Listen, hurt people hurt people. And the more you refuse to get into counseling, the more you refuse to get into community, you're gonna continue the cycle. I wrote this down. What if you could be the voice of freedom for those in your life? What if you were the person in your generation, okay, of all the generational baggage that's been passed down, what if you were the one who stood up and just said, enough, I'm done. I'm not going to keep playing these games. I'm not going to keep passing this down. I'm taking a stand today. I'm going to deal with it so I can be the voice of freedom to people in my life. And I can show them what it looks like not to be healed. I'm not healed not the side of heaven i'm I'm okay with that but i'm healthy and i've chosen to be the voice of freedom to tell people you can be healthy and you can live a full vibrant life and you don't have to be controlled by this stuff anymore you can move forward i want to stop here just for a second and just real quickly speak to those of you who are loving broken people keep going you are representing jesus christ to them and you may be the only person who's doing that. And I know it's hard. And some of you may need counseling community just to love that broken person. Bryant sees Kevin. He saw Kevin a lot in the very beginning. He talks to Kevin every couple of months now for himself and also just to kind of check in like, hey, this is how I'm loving Nicole. This is how I'm walking with her and these sorts of things because it's difficult sometimes. You may need that connection too, but you're doing the right thing. You're not always gonna get it right and you're representing Jesus Christ as that person. So here's my call to action for you guys. Number one is you got a journal. I need you guys to get a journal. I know for some of you that seems so crazy, but you need to sit down and you need to work through your unhealed hurts, your unresolved issues, and your unmet needs. You got to figure out what they are. And then I need you to commit to getting into counseling. I need to, you need to commit to getting into community. And then when you do that, I need you to do the work. You're going to work your booty off. It's going to be really difficult Sometimes. It's going to be two steps forward, one step back, but that's still progress, right? You got to do the work. And then you get to stand back and watch what Jesus does in your life. Would you guys stand and pray with me? Jesus, we love you so much. And I'm just grateful that I get to be up here on this stage. And I get to tell people that if you did a work in my life, you can do it in theirs. And that's what I've been praying all morning. That when I got up on this stage, they would understand the brokenness that I walked out of. So they would know that they're not too far gone. They're not too broken. They're not too messed up. That you love to take broken people and use them to tell our stories, to point people to your glory. Jesus, for those in here who maybe have never accepted you as their personal Savior, who are, are, have been fighting you, who have thought that you've done this to them, who have thought that you abandoned them, I pray that in this moment they would no longer begin, be able to fight or run from you that they would understand that you love them so much that you died on the cross for their sins and that you rose again. And by simply placing their faith and trust in you, they can have an eternal relationship with you. And one day when they get to heaven, they will be put back together again. Lord, I pray for those who walked in here suicidal. Pray for those who walked in here hurting, at a loss, at a dead end. God, please use this message to remind them that you love them, and that you have a purpose and a plan for their lives. And as we go into this next song, Jesus, I pray that they would lean back into the loving arms of their Heavenly Father, that they would once and for all this morning, right now, experience your unconditional and crazy, faithful love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.